DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, it's a big success for NATO. Having all the Nordic countries forming this northern wall stretching from Denmark over to the Russian border down through the Baltics and Poland, some of the most competent countries in Europe. A popular saying now is that the Baltic Sea has become a NATO lake. Sweden and the security issue. Why the transatlantic security community regards the country's NATO accession as a major coup. Enemy agents? Just what are Russian fishing vessels up to in Norwegian ports? And picking up the pieces, we meet the Ukrainian psychologists behind refugee-led mental health interventions in Prague. Following the ratification of Sweden's accession to NATO by the Hungarian parliament on Monday, Sweden is just one signature and a few brief procedures away from joining the transatlantic military alliance. Unfortunately for Sweden, that signature belongs to the incoming Hungarian president. The old one had to resign after pardoning a man convicted for hushing up a paedophile scandal. And Hungary has to inaugurate him first, so the waiting game isn't quite over yet, but no one expects any further glitches. In the meantime, Sweden is having to come to terms with what it means both politically and psychologically to have reversed a centuries-long tradition of military non-alignment. When I spoke to our Brussels correspondent and European security watcher Terry Schultz earlier, she agreed that this was no small thing. You're absolutely right. This was Swedishness, you know, to be to be neutral, to be non-aligned, to be a friendly country for refugees, immigrants, to not be, uh, you know, a warmonger, to not have that image. And this, in the minds of many Swedes and the Russians would, would like to seize on this narrative, you know, joining NATO changes that. But it would have been unthinkable except for the Russian behavior, this very brutal invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And then, of course, we saw the Finnish population absolutely change its views that it would never join NATO. And Sweden was right behind it. And that was something, you know, that some critics in Sweden said would erase Swedishness. But I, I had a very interesting conversation about this point with a defense expert, Oscar Jonsson, at the Swedish Defense University, and he had a very different perspective on that question. It was a bigger civilizational shift to join the EU, which has, you know, supranational authority and can, can create its own laws, which affects, you know, the Swedish way of life in, in a much more tangible way. But that is a non-debate today. Like, that is not to to a significant degree change the debate of, of Swedishness. I mean, the example is always given to Norway. I mean, Norway is still kind of the one of the main peace negotiators. They are still a leading voice for non-proliferation, for, for peace and, and for, for justice and everything Sweden believes itself to be. So I, I think in practical terms, I, it won't change any anything. And I think that if, if anything, I think it will 
kind of lessen the fears that it would have a, a profound change of, of, of what Sweden is because uh, you know it's it's it, it is it is military alliance that that takes decisions by consensus and and you cannot completely alter Sweden without Swedish consent. So Oscar Jonsson says Sweden already had shed its total neutrality and its non-alignment when it joined the European Union in 1995. But it still wouldn't have headed towards NATO membership that quickly, would it, if it hadn't been for Russia's brutal aggression in what Swedes very much feel is close enough to their their own neighbourhood, their own patch of the woods to be a threat. So will they feel safer now inside NATO? I suppose that's the big question. Yes, officially they will. The government says they will. They will have NATO's Article 5 guarantee, the all for one, one for all. So if there were an attack on Sweden after this, it can expect all the other allies to come to its defense. And, you know, Sweden had been very nervous over this last year because they deposited their bid to become a NATO member in May 2022, shortly after the Russian invasion. And then Finland got in within a year. So that left Sweden as this undefended territory that, yes, NATO would go to defend Finland. Yes, NATO would go to defend Norway on either side. But what would happen if Sweden was attacked? And they feared that Russia very much saw this as, you know, a potential opportunity. And I can remember speaking with the man who was in charge of parliamentary affairs on NATO, uh, Paul Jonsson. He's now the defense minister and will be standing there when, when this flag goes up very proudly. But he used to tell me, as Swedes, we can hope, we can assume, we can wish that we get support from NATO, but we can't know until we join. So that's going to be a very important day for those Swedes who, you know, really felt that they were especially vulnerable after they said they were going to join NATO, but didn't get in. But what's interesting, Kate, is it's not just the Swedes who are relieved. Jim Townsend is now an analyst with the Center for a New American Security, but for more than two decades, and as I knew him in his previous life, he worked in the Pentagon, mostly on Europe and NATO policy, and specifically on the Nordic countries since the early 90s. And he says bringing Sweden under the NATO umbrella, along with Finland, is such a huge boon for the alliance. Here's Jim. It's critical for NATO, and I say that, I say that because, um, you know, as we were planning and thinking about the Baltic Nordic area if, and fighting the Russians, uh, having those two countries uh, not aligned. You know, if you were a planner at Stuttgart, you know, a U.S. planner, you never really knew what would happen uh, in terms of them giving us permission to use their airspace or. You know, they're going to sit it out or maybe not. Maybe they'll be really helpful. Uh, their Navy might get involved or their Air Force, but you never knew. So Jim Townsend said after working with the Nordic countries his whole career, most of those years believing they would never join NATO, this was like Christmas for a defense planner like him. Uh, and with a potential Trump presidency on the horizon, again, this in those terms, I suppose, really is a year where Christmas really can't come early enough. And they hope that Christmas will still be held <laughs> after, you know, in years to come. That's true. And that that something is something that also um, reassures Sweden now because you can't count on the United States is the worry, but at least you'll have all the other NATO allies there. One more reaction that we should check, Terry. Moscow, what has been said or done by Russian President Vladimir Putin following the move towards accession? Well, he, he threatened them not to join. He said, don't do this or I will react in some way against you. But 
In fact, after they applied and as that path has gone on, you haven't seen much more than the usual bullying that Russia does against these countries and others all the time. Cyber attacks, you know, um, disinformation campaigns, trying to get Russian, ethnic Russians in those countries to rise up against the governments. But, you know, really nothing out of the usual for these countries. Uh, but I wanted to know what we could expect. You know, after the flag goes up, maybe after Russia is feeling more re-empowered. So I asked Robert Pichel. He was NATO's last diplomat posted in Russia back when relations were better. Now he's with the Warsaw-based Center for Eastern Studies. And here's what he said. We can expect more hybrid type operations and provocations and, generally speaking, testing of NATO's results. But the truth is Russia is occupied with the war in Ukraine and it's simply not capable of, for example, beefing up its presence neither in uh, the Baltic or particularly when it comes to other forms of, of substantial military activity. It is a big failure for Russia. And it's a big success for NATO. Having all the Nordic countries forming this northern wall, stretching from Denmark over to the Russian border, down through the Baltics and Poland, some of the most competent countries in Europe, a popular saying now is that the Baltic Sea has become a NATO lake. So when that Swedish flag goes up at NATO headquarters, I'm just imagining President Putin sitting in his office gnashing his teeth. And we'll just have to see if he can do anything else. Terry, thank you very much for joining me and sharing uh, that encyclopedic security knowledge that everybody, by the way, can tap into by following you on Twitter and Mastodon. So nice, Kate. I love it. Thank you very much. I'll be tweeting the heck out of this Swedish flag raising ceremony, guaranteed. DW's Terry Schultz there. Scandinavian security concerns are not peculiar to Sweden. Next-door neighbour Norway is also hotly debating how best to deal with Russia, with which it shares an almost 200-kilometre-long land border and 945 nautical miles of maritime boundary. Of particular concern are the three ports in northern Norway where Russian fishing boats are still allowed to land their catch. What kind of a security risk might these fishing vessels pose? And are they really all that they seem to be? From Tromsø in Norway's Arctic North, Lars Bavanga reports. If you wander along the seafront here in Tromsø, chances are you will spot several Russian fishing vessels. This has long been an important port for boats fishing cod in the Barents Sea, which lies in both Russian and Norwegian territorial waters. The two countries have cooperated on managing fish stocks there since the 1970s through a joint fisheries agreement. Basically, it's Norwegian and uh, Russian delegates who meet yearly uh, to discuss and agree on a total allowable catch for cod, haddock and capelin. Ingrid Pettersen works at the Norwegian Institute of Food Research in Tromsø. For, for Norway, at least, uh, the cod fishery is the most important wild catch species in terms of value. Uh, and also it is important for Russia, even though they also have a lot of other stocks that they fish on, but it's important for both countries to continue this uh, cooperation. 
The sustainable management of the fish stocks is the reason why Norway still allows Russian fishing vessels limited access to three Norwegian ports, despite most of Europe having banned Russian ships after Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022. The fisheries agreement was renegotiated as late as October last year. Russia has threatened to pull out of the agreement should Norway close the remaining three ports to Russian fishing vessels. Mark Lantain is an associate professor of political science at the University of Tromsø. This agreement has now come under quite a bit of scrutiny and quite under quite a bit of strain. Certainly this is controversial. Certainly there is the concern about, okay, what are these ships actually doing? Is there, again, the possibility of dual-use capability? You know, there have been cases where, for example, a fishing boat here in Tromsø unveiled a large uh, Russian flag, obviously trying to make a political statement. The dual-use capacity mentioned by Professor Lantain has been explored in a documentary series made by a group of Nordic journalists. Hovar Guldal is one of them. He works for the Norwegian national broadcaster NRK in Tromsø. Using publicly available shipping data, he could track where the Russian fishing vessels went, both in real time and historically. We could map their movements ten years back. And uh, in the end, we were able to pinpoint a group of vessels that have probably been doing espionage along the Norwegian coast. It's important to note that we don't think all Russian fishermen are, uh, are spies, not at all. Uh, but according to our sources, some of these vessels will have one or two uh, agents on board. We could see for the last 10 years that whenever there was a big NATO exercise along the coast, some of the same fishing trawlers would pop up in the same area again and again and again. And we were thinking, okay, once or twice might be a coincidence, but when you see the systematic occurrences, that's when we are rising above a threshold, which we would take to our experts and talk to it. And they were quite clear that this was probably espionage. What have the Russians said about these allegations? Of course, we've tried to talk to quite a lot of uh, Russian uh, captains on board, um, uh, but haven't been able to get a comment from them. So we got a comment from the uh, embassy, uh, and they said that this was not happening. Russian vessels can be docked here for weeks at a time, and the people on board can move freely around not only the city of Tromsø, but in the whole region. This is an area with several Norwegian military installations and at times high levels of NATO activity. Some politicians argue Tromsø and the two other remaining open ports must be closed for this reason and as a further sanction against Russia's war in Ukraine. Journalist Horvat Guldal again. Yes, it's a really thorny issue for the Norwegian government, this. The rest of Europe have closed off their ports, while the Norwegian position officially is that we need to have some sort of interaction because we share big fishing stock with Russia that we want to uh, have a good cooperation around. The Kremlin's official maritime doctrine, which addresses Russian interests and objectives at sea, openly says that the state might use civilian vessels as part of their naval fleet. The question for Norway now is whether to continue to allow access to Russian fishing boats here in the north or putting the fisheries agreement and fish stocks at risk and stopping potential spy activity. Lars Bevanger, DW, Tromsø.
and the Scandinavian theme continues on Spotify. We've been talking a lot about Scandinavian NATO membership on the programme recently, but what about the EU? Which of these countries are members of the bloc? Denmark? Norway. Sweden. If you think you know, head on over to Spotify to take part in the poll. The results from last week's poll are in. By the way, a slim majority of you knew that the popular uprising which ousted former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014 is known as the Euromaidan. All those of you who guessed Orange Revolution, however, can take comfort in the knowledge that that was indeed the name of a popular Ukrainian uprising. Only that one took place 10 years earlier in 2004. Whatever your answer was, thank you for taking part in our Spotify quiz. Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual podcast platforms, and that includes YouTube via the DW Podcasts channel. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Now to our final story this half hour, which comes to us from the Czech Republic or Czechia. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago, over 300,000 Ukrainian refugees have sought safety there, many of them severely traumatised by their experiences. From Prague, Morgan Childs reports on the innovative refugee-led interventions which are helping them to process what's happened to them. It was a stunning display of solidarity. Thousands of people standing shoulder to shoulder on Old Town Square on the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And that solidarity is nothing new. From the first day of the full-scale invasion, the Czech Republic has given Ukraine its enthusiastic support, granting asylum to more refugees per capita than any other country in Europe. But as time has passed, that support has waned, and the continued stress of the past two years has taken a toll on many refugees' mental health. How to survive? How to earn money? What am I need to pay, for example, insurance payment, or where can I find the doctor? And uh, I think it's hard, because if I have only one big problem, it's only one. And when I have uh, quite a lot uh, of different problems. I am, I don't know what to do. Tetiana Zubritska is a clinical psychologist from Kiev who arrived in Prague just after the war started. She now works for Amiga, 
an organization that employs Ukrainian therapists and psychiatrists to provide mental health support for their fellow refugees. It's good because people start feel life every day, every moment, and they start understand uh, their feelings. Amiga was founded in 2010 to assist migrants' adaptation to life in the Czech Republic. When the Ukraine war began, the organization opened a center in Prague to help people struggling with emotional stress. Amiga co-founder Elena Tolupova explains. Very soon uh, people started coming and many of them were actually psychologists who arrived from Ukraine. But what fascinated us that they wanted not only to find this shelter in the Czech Republic, but also to integrate, to recognize their education and to find opportunities to help other people who are coming from Ukraine. So, of course, we wanted to support it. And with help of Ministry of Interior, Ministry of Health, we tried to find the way how they can legally work here. Refugee-led mental health programs like Amiga's shared DNA with interventions like Project Management Plus, developed by the World Health Organization. Marit Sibrandi is the director of the WHO's Collaborating Center at the Free University in Amsterdam, where she researches mental health among vulnerable populations. In the beginning, we were, of course, concerned. We thought maybe for some people it's too much, right? You're, you're a refugee yourself, and then you also have to provide help to other refugees. Of course, we were able to select people who are uh, sort of stable, uh, who are not having any severe mental health problems themselves. So we did some selection. And what we found is that for many of them, uh, it was a very, very positive experience. So some people still uh, are uh, PM Plus helpers. They still offer the intervention. Sometimes it helped them to find a paid job by an organization also interested to offer these types of interventions. And, well, a really nice example is that one of our trainers that was uh, an important trainer in a problem management plus in our own university, a Syrian trainer, is now training these interventions in Ukraine. So in a way, we really think we have sort of um, boosted the, the expertise also among these refugees communities. In the Czech Republic today, many Ukrainian refugees still struggle with finding affordable housing, employment, and language training. And as time passes, resources to support projects like Amiga have proven harder to come by. Since uh, my colleagues and me, we have been working in the governmental sector. We knew how it works. Unfortunately, this sector is extremely unstable. Of course, the stress is bigger for us because our colleagues are also in very vulnerable situation, uh, being refugees themselves. And of course, we explained them from the very beginning that this funding can finish any moment. So that's why we also tried to provide other opportunities to register as, for example, individual entrepreneur, as a psychotherapist who can have a contract with public health insurance funds. Uh, so basically, that's why also we try to provide more requalification opportunities. So uh, our colleagues uh, shouldn't be just attached to Amiga and depend on us, but to, to try to have all opportunities to build their career uh, and life in the Czech Republic themselves. For the moment, funds from the European Union and the Czech Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs are keeping Amiga's program up and running. Financing may not last as long as the war does, but for Tatiana Zubritska, that's just another reminder to take things day by day. I know how to find a resource, 
resource for myself, for support my daughter for, and for support our colleagues. And uh, I teach uh, our clients do the same. How to find resources, where, what for? It's for, for continuing their life from now and till, till tomorrow, till next week, till next month. Morgan Childs, DW, Prague. Just a reminder here that our address for feedback and story ideas is insideeurope at dw.com. You can, of course, also leave us comments, likes and ratings via the various platforms. We do look at them and they're all greatly appreciated since they help other listeners to find us. This is Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. In the next half hour, closing in, is Germany's domestic intelligence agency moving to classify the AFD party as an extremist organisation? Right to choose. France is poised to enshrine access to abortion in the constitution. Islamic State terror in Turkey. Christians live in fear of further attacks. Today they are shady. They are as if a regular citizen. So it's not that much easier to distinguish exactly who is radical or not. For instance, the latest incident in the church, well, the individuals are like regular citizens. You can't distinguish them. And Meeting Through Music, the innovative project enabling refugee children to jam with their Norwegian peers. That's all still to come. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. This week, Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung reported that the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution is poised to reclassify the whole of the AFD, Alternative for Germany Party, as confirmed extremist, a change in designation which would enable a significant scaling up of surveillance. To talk over what this means in practice and what the political implications of this move might be, I spoke to DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, on the line from our Berlin studio. We're talking here about the domestic intelligence agency in Germany. And as the name says, you mentioned the official name, Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. Its main goal is to look at potential organizations or groups that might do things against that constitution, that might do things against Germany's democracy and constitutional order. So far, Germany's domestic intelligence agency has 
classified the AFD as a suspected case of far-right extremism. Some of the AFD's uh, institutions, some of the main AFD groups, have already been classified as confirmed far-right extremist, but the party as a whole has not. And this is what this report in the Süddeutsche Zeitung is basically all about. And if this all sounds bureaucratic and difficult to understand, well, it is bureaucratic and difficult to understand, but it has concrete political implications. It basically means that so far the domestic intelligence agency has been able to sort of carefully look at what the AFD does using surveillance methods to basically look at whether the AFD is only a suspected case or a certified case. And if it were to confirm that the party as a whole is a certified far-right extremist organization, then that would obviously bring that whole surveillance to a new level. And it's not only important from their perspective, it also sends a clear message that the party as a whole and not only specific elements within the party are far-right extremists and are as such going against Germany's constitutional order. There are many questions about this. There are many controversies around this. The AFD uh, is obviously against any kind of surveillance from the domestic intelligence agency. They say that that's not the role of a domestic intelligence agency. They've uh, tried to appeal against that. And in fact, there's an important decision regarding one of those appeals coming up probably in the next few days or in the next few weeks in the city of Münster. But in any case, it is something that goes just beyond that very complex description of whether it is a suspected or a certified extremist, far-right extremist organization. And it has certainly also political implications going ahead. Right. And if I've understood the Süddeutsche Zeitung reporting correctly, that date in March in Munster, where the RFD is going to try and appeal against the current classification as a suspected case of extremism, that is actually probably going to be the uh, date that the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution is waiting for. They want to have that case out of the way. They want to hear what the judge is going to say before they make the move to change the classification. That's also what I understood, and not only because of the report in the Süddeutsche Zeitung, but in, in general, it's something that the domestic intelligence agency has been waiting for the case. As far as the AFD is concerned, such a decision would basically strengthen their views that this is politically motivated. But on the other hand, there are those who say that it is basically evident that the AFD has turned towards far-right extremism and that there are already plenty of evidence out there stressing that the AFD is moving towards a more radical and radical position. And the latest of those, uh, let's say, evidence, if we want to call them like that, is the fact that members of the AFD took part in that meeting last year, which was revealed in January, where apparently uh, leaders of different groupings, extremist groupings discussed that idea of remigration or that idea of deporting foreigners from uh, Germany. And this is something that created huge shockwaves here in the country and led to very, very big protest in most German cities, also in small towns across the country. And that has basically led to many people thinking, okay, this is certainly evidence pointing towards a direction that the AFD is evidently now to going towards far-right extremism. 
Indeed, and not just the deportation of foreigners, it's important to say, but also of people with German citizenship um, were, were included in, in those plans, which have caused such outrage. But one thing that it may influence is the ongoing question as to whether or not the AFD should be banned as a party. If you had a situation where the Federal Office for the Pre Protection of the Constitution had said, yes, this is an extremist party which is working against the democratic order, then presumably that case and the pressure on politicians to make that move becomes a lot stronger. I agree with that. It would become a lot stronger. But I think the debate is also such a big one and has such different elements that it is unclear whether a move towards banning the AFD would be successful. There are those who say that such a party, especially because it has political representation here in the Bundestag in Berlin and also political representation in most regional parliaments, that the way forward is not by banning it because you would still not be able to ban the ideas behind that or the ideas that are supported by voters, but that the way forward is actually fighting or tackling the party politically. That is why the debate here is not only about, okay, should the AFD be banned or not, but also how to deal with the AFD beyond that possible banning. Irrespective of that, I do think that if the domestic intelligence agency confirms the AFD as a far-right extremist party, not just the branches or the organizations within the AFD, but the whole party as a whole, that this would increase pressure on uh, the German, let's say, establishment to basically tackle the political ideas of the AFD in a much in a much stronger way. If you have a party like the AFD with around 20% in the polls, if you have a party like the AFD that in the eastern part of the country could actually become the strongest force, if you have a party that despite becoming more and more radical, despite having members that took part in that uh, deportation meeting still continues to have the support of many Germans, then that is something that should certainly be a matter for other parties to reflect on what have they not done right that have led the AFD and AFD members to actually have that support in the polls. I was talking to DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there. Now, tackling the ideas of politicians bent on changing the democratic rights of citizens is one thing, but what can be done to ensure that, should they gain power, those rights remain protected? Well, in France, President Macron has decided that, at least in respect to one issue, the Constitution provides a possible answer. Next week, the French Congress is due to vote on whether to enshrine the right to abortion in the French Constitution. The resolution has already passed in the National Assembly, the lower house of the French Parliament and in the Senate. Should Congress approve it, France will become the first country in the world to enshrine a woman's right to abortion in its constitution. This report from Giada Santana and Claudia Coliva. I'm hopeful, fingers crossed. I think the law will pass. I think it's the best I'm going to see. Daniela Soon is a gynecologist. Abortion has been legal in France since 1975, but as the manager of an abortion clinic and a feminist activist, Danielle says she's faced challenges throughout her 40-year career. 
During the 90s, there were anti-abortion protests in front of clinics, and these were extremely upsetting for the women and everyone else. I remember six rallies that took place outside clinics where I worked, and I also received hostile mail. But nowadays there's public acceptance that women can choose for themselves. Opinion polls reveal broad support for the Macron government's pledge to constitutionalize abortion rights. The proposal was spearheaded by Melanie Vogel, a senator with the Green Party. Basically, this idea to introduce the right to abortion in the French constitution has been a demand of feminists for a while. But people seeing how abortion rights are shrinking close to France, in Italy, in Hungary, in Poland. But of course, also after what happened in the US, which worked really, I think, in France as a wake-up call, like, okay, that can really happen just overnight. You wake up and this right that you think is there and will always stay actually can disappear um, just like this overnight. So I think the political and societal situation changed in France. And I think we are getting close to a historical victory. Vogel accepts that the right to abortion in France is not at risk at the moment. But she points out that women's rights are never guaranteed, which is why it's important to protect them. A right is more protected when it is in the constitution than in a law, because a law, another law can change it. If it's in the constitution, the law cannot change it. You need a higher majority. So if we wait for a real parliamentary threat to this right, which would mean that you have more anti-choice MPs who maybe have a majority to uh, make this right shrink, but of course it's too late to put it into the constitution. You protect a right when it's not threatened. When it's threatened, it's too late. You cannot protect it anymore. Younger feminist activists see the proposed change as the culmination of a decades-long battle inherited from their predecessors. But even if the measure is approved, some remain wary. Anna Margueritat is a young photographer who's covered the feminist movement in France. I don't think we should let our guard down and take things for granted, because at any moment there could be a backlash. The president of the French Senate, Gérard Lachet, said himself that he wasn't in favor of enshrining abortion in the Constitution because he felt that this right wasn't under threat, and he didn't want the Constitution to become a catalog, to quote him, of social rights. So we sense a certain contempt on the part of our leaders and men when it comes to decisions about women's bodies. The far right also has a place in political decision-making in France, which means there's a concrete risk of backlash against minority rights and women's rights. Other activists point out that guaranteeing a right to abortion won't necessarily make it easier for women to have access to one. For example, women living in rural areas, where cuts to healthcare have led to the closure of hundreds of maternity clinics. Senator Melanie Vogel agrees that providing women across the country with equal access to an abortion is a major challenge. It's clear that it's not that overnight when we're going to change the constitution, a new uh, health center is going to open in all the villages and that it's going to be easier, of course. But uh, first of all, I think it sends a very strong signal to the society that this, is, this has now become 
a priority for the country and that it's not possible to, for example, vote budgets that attack the financing of health centers and things like this. And I really believe that if we manage to do that in France, it's not going to stop in France. I'm sure it's going to start a movement where feminists in other countries are going to say, but actually we want to do the same. We want to do the same. France did it. We also want the same protection. Senator Melanie Vogel ending that report by Giada Santana and Claudia Coliva. Turkey now, where security forces have detained hundreds of people in the aftermath of an attack on an Istanbul church last month, which was claimed by the terror organisation Islamic State. With the group threatening further attacks against Jews and Christians, Istanbul's small Christian community is now living in fear of what may be to come. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Heavily armed police are now protecting churches across Istanbul day and night. It follows January's deadly attack on a Catholic church by two armed men, which killed one person. A death toll that would have been considerably higher if the perpetrator's automatic weapons had not jammed. Islamic State claimed responsibility in a statement, warning it was targeting Jews and Christians in Turkey. Istanbul's small Christian community is now fearful of more violence, but remains defiant, says Ilham Guzelish, who had just attended his local church service. You don't have to be a member of the congregation to be frightened. It's something that would terrify anyone. We're scared. But believe me, we've never hesitated to come to our church, to worship here and to pray to God. Turkish security forces have launched a crackdown against Islamic State. A Russian and Tajik have been arrested for carrying out the attack, while over a hundred others have been detained across the country. Turkey borders territory once held by the terrorist group, which is also known as ISIS. So analysts warn the threat remains considerable. Sezin Öne is with the Politikyol news portal. There are armed groups in Turkey. They still have the baggage in Turkey, the remnants of the armed groups inside Turkey, even ISIS remnants, back from the uh, Syrian war. The last time Islamic State successfully carried out a major attack was in 2017, when a gunman went on a rampage during New Year celebrations, killing over 50 people at a nightclub. Murat Aslam is with the Foundation for Political, Economic and Social Research, an Ankara think tank. He says security forces are engaged in a deadly cat-and-mouse game with a terrorist group, also known as Daesh. This is a mutual competition between the security forces and also terrorist cells. Both sides will try to identify or deceive each other. And in this case, I believe Daesh terrorists were skillful at least to bypass the security measures. On the other hand, this is not an easy job. Because in the older times, for instance, radical individuals had mustache, clothing, etc. Today they are shaving. They are as if a regular citizen. So it's not that much easier to distinguish exactly who is radical or not. For instance, the latest incident in the church, well, the individuals are like regular citizens. You can't distinguish them. 
The church attack was really significant in terms of the potential of Daesh, first of all. Turkey hosts a lot of churches or any Jewish holy sites. So once they enjoy uh, a presence in here with uh, hidden cells, they can easily select a target. Back at the church, Ilham Guzelic welcomes police protection. But it's sad that it is necessary. After an incident like this, it's good that they're here to protect us, and we're grateful. But I wish that everyone could live together as brothers and sisters. We regret what happened. It creates bitterness. Christians like Guzelic may have to worship under police protection for some time to come. And Turkey's lucrative tourism season is just months away, which could provide further potential targets for Islamic State. So the security crackdown is expected to intensify. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. Just a reminder here that if you have any comments about that or any of the other items covered in the programme, then our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. High time for some cultural catharsis, I'd say, and luckily for us, we've got just the ticket. So take your seats, please, ladies and gentlemen, as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of Fagerspiel, a Norwegian musical project bringing refugee children together in harmony, musical and otherwise, with their Norwegian peers. Begun in the city of Bergen, the project has been so successful that it's being replicated across the country in a spectacular fusion of culture, music and some seriously good vibes. Louise Gorman went along to meet some of the players on and off the stage. Bergen-born musician Ola Homre revels in mixing traditions. The 64-year-old drummer gives an impromptu rendition of his city's beloved anthem, Newstempton. And that was only the words, but the melody is from Macedonia. This faster, more rhythmical version among the first songs Fargus Bill performed. Bergen has also been a gateway to the world. So it's been people coming here from all over the world for, I mean, centuries. So, so it's a certain openness to new ideas. 20 years ago this year, Homra and his wife Sissel founded Fagersville, a musical project that brings together young refugees and Norwegian kids on stage. The percussionist says they never imagined it becoming what it is today. We just wanted to make music and dance and, and performances. And uh, suddenly, you know, people in some way uh, moved by what was happening. And then everything just developed by itself. 
We're inside Fargusville House, a villa they rent with its own interwoven history. I think this building is like 400 years old. The thing is that this anthem was performed for the very first time in this house. Serendipity aside, this is where 100 youngsters, aged 7 to 25, meet each week. This is the rehearsal space. So we rehearse in groups all year and then we come close to the performance. We get them all together in a much, much bigger uh, room. And it's that time of year, production week. Forget after-school rehearsals, it's time to start bumping into Grieg Hall, Bergen's preeminent performing arts venue. First up, sound checks for the professional musicians and young singers testing their vocals. Fourteen-year-old Sarah is half Palestinian and proud to be singing two of her favourite songs. The one is Dama Falestini, who is a traditional song from Palestine, and it's The Moon Glowed uh, by Riembana, who is not like that traditional, but and I listened to it when I was a kid, so I wanted to mix them and then make this song. Kids having a say in what music they sing and perform is at the heart of Fagerspil. Kahadu is Bergensian Norwegian for What Do You Have? It's not only the method behind this artistic concept, but the title of this year's Jubilee performances. It's like a circle of trust, or you know for sure. When you're done, we're going to be crazy. <laughs> they are stomping their feet and clapping their hands. So it, we've used a lot of time to make that space in the rehearsal. So everybody know if they put their hands up and say, I want, I would like to show, they, it's safe. That's Helena Eseba, one half of the artistic direction. Born in Bergen, she left Copenhagen to take up what she calls her dream job. It's a place that combines the music and the people. So it's a lot of the songs that we do, they are quite advanced for me and the rhythmic is, I need to concentrate very much to learn it, but it's also the kids and youngsters that participate in Fagerspil, they are amazing. They learn me something every day. Making these kids, most of whom are refugees or born to refugee parents, feel safe is paramount. Richard was 15 when he was forced to flee his home in the Democratic Republic of Congo due to threats of violence. He spent five years in Uganda before being granted UN protection. I'm very grateful to Norway and also it's very peaceful and very safe. Yeah. Norway has a long history of resettling refugees and offering integration support. Fagerspiel relies on government grants as well as private donations to operate. Per Mugland is CEO of the foundation that oversees the project nationally and says their priorities lie with the kids and the artistic process itself. We make it clear that we're not here to help them. We're here to make them shine or they have to, to share with us. But of course, if they come to us and ask for help, we help them. But that doesn't happen that often. Oslo and Buda also have their own ensembles with licenses to use the concept in over 20 towns across Norway. Freitas Mayberg is producing Bergen's ensemble and says watching the kids develop is immensely rewarding. A lot of them have been in Fagerspil since they were children and now they're grown-ups and we get to follow that whole process and everybody has their own process. Just seeing that these kids taking those steps and daring a little bit more each time and see them developed is such a privilege. Like, who else gets to do that with working with music? 
The project has helped reconnect Aya to her Ugandan heritage. After nearly 10 years with the group, she's having her first solo. She was just eight when she arrived in Bergen and remembers being mesmerised during a class trip to see Fagaspil perform, especially a fellow Ugandan sing and dance in front of her. When she screamed, Monangu, it basically means, where are you guys? Like, where are you guys? And I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> That's my mother tongue. There's jubilation in the air as the young performers gather for their first run-through together. Aside from singing and beatboxing, nine-year-old Noelle and Marius are most excited about... Dancing, being with friends. Uh, dancing. There are 30 different cultures on stage. It's a crazy fact, not lost on Yukama Sima. The 22-year-old Zambian is thrilled to be playing his part. OK, wow, this is beautiful. And the culture differences. I found out that there's a lot of people from different uh, parts of the world and got to learn so much different uh, stuff they do back in their home countries and all that. So that was very, for me, it was more like, wow. I mean, it's easy to integrate with everybody like that, you know. Like the performers and colleagues, founder Cecil Sal greets me with wide open arms. The singer and mother of four says hugging is what they do in this close-knit group, especially since COVID. Many of them is alone and they're sitting in their little apartment. So to come to the rehearsal with Fadgisman is very important for them. That's their family. I meet Ella after the final dress rehearsal. She's singing Rosenfalls, a Norwegian folk song about a horse running a long stretch. The song has a deeper meaning with like, yeah, that feeling of like longing or longing after something or someone. So that's what we were trying to like um, show the audience. And it's nearly showtime, but not before a little group motivation. Hip-hop inspired from Tunisia, a Tamil love song, a romping gumboot dance out of South Africa, as well as this song about working the rice fields in Myanmar, there's a mix of everything. And in another first, the mother of nine-year-old Nahili is invited on stage to sing a traditional song from her birth country, Ethiopia. Dressed in traditional clothes from a tiny village in Nansibo, Danga says it's a beautiful song about friendships and saying goodbye. With standing ovations, the audience is clearly moved. I meet Nathaniel in the foyer afterwards. It's been emotional several times. Just a, such a welcoming for the international uh, environment here. And a lot of the children are from refugee families. And, uh... In Greek Hall, Louise Gorman, DW. And on that note, we reached the end of the show. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Lars Schlimmer and Jana Stegemann. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. Mm-hmm.